Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Crystal Fall. I'm the deputy editor of Film and TV Craft at IndieWire, and my guest today is Rami Youssef, the creator, director, and star of Rami. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Apple TV Plus original documentary, Beastie Boy Story. Beastie Boy's Mike Diamond and Adam Horowitz tell you an intimate personal story of their band and 40 years of friendship in this live documentary experience directed by their longtime friend and collaborator, director Spike Jones. The film reunites Beastie Boys with Spike over 25 years after he directed their immortal uh, single, Sabotage. Wow, 25 years. Seems like yesterday. Such a great music video. And this is a great movie. It's four-year Emmy consideration in all eligible categories, including outstanding documentary or nonfiction special. Visit fyc.appletvplus.com. I really like this film a lot more than I expected. And, uh, you know, while I'm plugging it, I might as well plug the podcast. Uh, recommend that you go back a couple episodes and listen to my conversation with Spike and his editor, uh, Jeff Buchanan. It was a lot of fun. Great shows really, you start. they start to becoming great in that second season where it's almost the like they figured out what worked in the first season and what didn't work. And it's like, it's in those adjustments. It's the ability to let mm. certain things go and then really build on strengths versus just kind of reshuffling the deck. And I, I really feel like, you know, I enjoyed season one, but I really felt like what the show became in season two was something really great. And so I kind of wanted to start there. You know, what, what was it kind of looking back on season one that was working that you're like, okay, we got to do this. We got to do more of this mm. and build on this. And, you know, subsequently, you can imagine what the other one's going to be is what, what did you leave behind? <laughs> you know, what was it? Yeah. That, yeah. What, you know, what was it that was kind of like, OK, that's more of a season one thing, but we want to build on this for season two. Yeah. You know, I think I, I don't know if that was the exact framing that I felt. I mean, I think um, in terms of process, I definitely had. um thoughts on every episode of season one in the same way that I have thoughts in every episode of season two. Actually, something that I'm, I just started working on a, a couple nights ago was um, my own critical breakdown of the second season of the show, scene by scene, that I'm like making this kind of master document for my producing partners and me and kind of going into like, here's what I liked here, here's what I didn't like, here's what I thought we missed, here's what, you know, um, I loved that we did and I want to do more of. And so I think from, um, I'm just curious, did you do that? that for, did you do that for season one too? I didn't. Okay. And, and I, I, I wish I did, but, um, I think I didn't have downtime. So we launched season one, April 19th, and we were back writing beginning of May. And so, um, this is kind of something that, um, is a little bit born out of like, having some more time, uh, a little bit of pandemic time, that kind of thing. And I'm really excited to do it. Um, and I think the main reflection leaving season one, though, was we want to retain something that was exciting to us, which when we walked into making the show, big conversation I have with my co-creators, Ari and Ryan, was we want this to have more of a short film tone. We don't want to be doing the TV thing where every episode is A story, B story, C story, D story, um, where things start to feel really crammed and it starts to feel like nothing's really getting its air and it feels very formulaic. Um, we wanted to make sure we had this like short film feel where we're focusing on one character at a time, one journey at a time, and then that afforded us the ability to kind of like break off into different characters. So we were we wanted to keep that, but going into season two, I think something we wanted was to have a little bit more of a concrete 
plot and we wanted to um, put my character in particular under a little bit more of a pressure cooker. Like we kind of felt like season one was very, who am I? And then we were like, okay, so we can't keep asking that question. Season two needs to be, okay, this is who I actually am. And I have to deal with this. And there are real problems that come from the answer that I got to that, you know, navel gazing, soul searching journey. And so it's less aspirational and it's more transformational. And then that kind of seeped into our tone. Our tone is less we want to be dark, we want to be light, our tone is more a reflection of what is Rami's state of mind. And that kind of like bled through the whole season. I guess in the first season, there was, uh, I think it was a standalone episode for the sister and a standalone episode for the mom. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at is there's more of that. And also, but an idea that, I mean, I found there's a thematic linking of all of these things. So it's like Rami has this arc, this story, it's a little bit more concrete that's kind of going from beginning to end, but that it's expanded on not necessarily through a traditional AB story, but almost thematically building it out through these various characters, right? Yeah, I think we're trying to really find where everyone's hiding. And I think so much of uh, the second season is finding, we find all our characters in the pockets of what they're hiding, what they're trying to figure out, um, who they want to be and where they actually are. Um, those gaps, that wrestling match, those inner debates, that is the most important thread where we want to make sure we're meeting everyone at those places. Considering that you wanted like a little bit of a stronger story um, or a tighter story, I don't know what word, I forget what word you used, but it's it's fascinating, and it was probably my favorite episode, that your penultimate episode is actually a standalone for for what who I thought of as being more of the comedic character, Uncle Nassim. And and yet that that works so well that that's going to be your second to last episode. And and yet it, it is exploring a character who we at least I hadn't watching the show. I hadn't thought about him in these in these ways. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's 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 almost like, um, again, if we're looking at what everyone's hiding in terms of threading the narrative of hidden things, it's kind of the kicker. It's the most hidden thing <laughs> in many ways um, of this family that, that we're, you know, we've been getting to know. And so um, process wise, it's interesting, too, because episode placement uh, is something that we played with a lot while we were making the season. Um, episode placement was not decided until, um, you know, really further into the cuts and further into where we were at, because a lot of things we're just up in the air. I mean, I think even um, without giving too much away, our even what our, what is our final episode? Which is it's so clear that it's the final episode now. But I think at the time we we had a couple of different configurations where it was going to be the penultimate, and we had a different episode that was going to be the final episode. And so it there, there, a lot of things you know um, shifting the more that we shot and the more that we sat with certain things. That's crazy to me that 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 last image isn't the la that at some point that wasn't the last image. <laughs> I know. But what is that thinking, though, in, in, as you're playing with this? What was that thinking in terms of uh, that wonderful uh, Uncle Nassim episode as as, as the, the ninth one? Um, I think a lot of what we wanted to do with Nassim, I think we explore throughout the series. I think one of the biggest things that we're going at is concepts of masculinity and what it means to be a man uh, culturally and generationally. 
And I think a lot of the tension between Rami and Nassim is a bit of these debates over, you know, how Rami should manifest those principles. And I think Rami feels a, a big pull from his uncle in how he should perform that. He feels um, a, a lack of communication with his father. They're not connecting. And then he almost takes on this sheikh as this idea of what a man should really be. And he tries to embody that. And and I think with the uncle, um, we're introduced to him really early, you know, in, in season one in the second episode. Uh, Rami's kind of caught between his father and his uncle. And then we introduce the sheikh. And um, as we talk about a lot of these things, and, and, and it very much is Rami's journey throughout the season, uh, watching us deconstruct Uncle Nassim's performance of masculinity um, was really exciting and really interesting for us to kind of understand what he's hiding, why he's acting the way that he's acting, um, having the audience know that before the characters know it. Um, it just feels like really nice groundwork for us. In, in, in that way that you're exploring masculinity in this season, often it's around issues of intimacy, not not simply sex, but also just a sense of connection between people. And it kind of dictates a little bit um, the tone and the way that things are directed, because it's that like you want us to live in these moments of 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 feeling. I, I use the word awkward. I don't know if it is, but it, these characters inability in to necessarily when, when they're confronted with intimate moments or an ability to share. And I think that's one of the things that's so magical about Mahershala's performances is he's got, he's the one guy that's kind of figured it out. Who's kind of comfortable mm. in his skin, just kind of revealing how uncomfortable some of these elements make, make the other characters like yours. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think like awkward comedy is a thing, but that's not really what we're getting at. We're not building moments to be awkward. It's we're finding these pockets, I think in genuine moments and, and letting them breathe. And, and to me, like, I, I really, I can't emphasize how much I believe in the edit. I, I really think things are really, it sounds so simple to say, but like I watch TV and I watch movies a lot of the time and I'm like, man, with the footage I'm seeing in front of me, there's a different edit here. There is something else and the edit is so, so powerful. And we really use the edit to, um, to punctuate and to let things breathe in a way that it really is its own writing. And it seems like I was just watching some of the running times. It, 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 they don't, I, maybe I'm wrong about this, but well, I guess not because it's Hulu, but they're not locking you into a running time. Right. So if you have to, if you have to breathe into 32, 33 minutes, you, you can, right. Which is, mm -hmm. I think it's a different edit if you're having to turn in commercial breaks and, and keep it to a tight, yeah. a tight one. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 um, I, yeah, I'm so grateful to be able to do that. Um, and could you imagine in a different world, it's 10 years ago and you're doing this and you, you, you're, you're in a situation where you're writing for breaks and having to do this and you're, 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 you're trying to let these things breathe I, in the edit. Oh, I can't, I can't mostly because 10 years ago, I don't get a show. You know, I mean, it's, yeah. just, it's just not happening. It's yeah. just not like, but, but of course, man, but even though I will say like my critique on things in edits come from things that don't have restrictions too. I'm talking mm -hmm. about things like that I'm watching now, movies I'm watching today, mm -hmm. things I'm watching on streamers, all of mm -hmm. that. Um, I personally think things should be shorter. We don't have like any time I can have an episode that's 21 minutes. I love that. Oh, yeah, and I yeah. want that. I think it's a good time. I mean, um, I could be wrong. I think season two, 
we might cross the 30 minute threshold once or twice and then everything else is closer to 25 20 i mean our finales i think goes over 40 mm-hmm. but then everything else is like man if i could have it be 22 23 i love that <laughs> yeah. i i love nothing more than to lose 30 percent of the script i mean it's it's really it's fun because you get to really zone in on yeah the things that actually were the most alive when 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 shooting and did your role uh behind the scenes change a little bit going into season two i I noticed you directed more episodes but did you did you obviously you're the star you're you're one of the co-creators here but did 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 your role and kind of the day-to-day also change and increase did you become I, someone had told me that you had become this showrunner in season two. I don't know if that's true, but even without that, it's there's an element of mm-hmm. um, you directed a lot more. Yeah, I did. I did become the showrunner in season two. Um, I think a lot of it was, you know, and you look at this model and this template, I think for a lot of creator driven shows, season one, there are some guardrails that are kind of put in in name and, and stuff like that. And we had a really great team, but I think it's also the network kind of being like, I had to really fight to direct one episode in season one. And it's because they don't know anything of what I'm bringing to the table other than they saw a 45 minute stand up tape that had good premises, but like, that's it, you know, and they're picking up a show based off that, which is um, really like huge props to them to do that, but they don't know. And I think I was so ingrained in every part of the process very early on it's not like I had written a TV show before, but I remember seeing maybe one of an, an initial outline on something and kind of very quickly being like, oh, I don't like TV outlining. I don't like how it's done and I'm going to do all the outlines. So like just immediately I was like, I'm doing every outline and my outlines are very detailed. They're like single spaced, like minimum eight to 10 pages of single space stuff. You could shoot the outline, you put it in a final draft and it's clocking out over 26 pages, 20, like it's, it's, it's a script, you know, and that's really important to me. And I want to be hands on with that because I want to make sure that this feels the way that it should. And I think so much of um, what I crafted in stand up, my stand up experience went from, you know, I would do shows at mosques for uh, Muslim community members where the, the the I'm literally doing it in the prayer area wearing my socks men on one side women on one side and I would do a, a 40 minute set uh, walking an extremely tight tightrope and then I would go to the get in my car and go to the laugh factory and do a midnight show <laughs> in front of two bachelorette parties mm-hmm. and and I can see I can see the discomfort at the mosque if I bring up anything that comes close to sex and I can see the discomfort at the comedy club if I start talking about religion and it's this it's this really fine thing that throughout all of season one very quickly I realized I'm the only one who knows the recipe here because I've been working on this for 10 years and I'm going to be over everyone's shoulder I'm going to be like down everyone's neck whatever it might be because um, not only is it my name but I know I feel like only I know exactly how I want to piss people off it's such a really fine thing and so um, I think season two I got to officially take on a lot more of the things that I had really been hawking over, obviously, and really protecting. And again, on both seasons, I had amazing teams in both seasons that really um, gave me the room to do that and allowed me to do that because everyone kind of understood that we were treading into um, a very delicate conversation. 
It also seems like that kind of um, that tightrope that you want to walk tonally is something uh, we were just talking about the edit. But I think it also comes down to the direction, too. Right. In that sense of of, um, you know, I just think about I I just rewatched this morning um, the Atlantic City episode with you and Steve. And, you know, there's a there's a there's a definite setup there. But there's also a moment. There's also an ability of what how we want to live in that scene and how we want to, you know, obviously we have empathy for these characters, but also just how that's going to play out in the pace and stuff. And I have to imagine what you're kind of, what you're talking about isn't simply just the story or the edit, but it's also to a certain degree, the the direction as well. Yeah, very much. I mean, there are a lot of ways that you can play a scene like in that Atlantic city hotel room and (laughs) um, from everything that comes from performance to, all the things that surround it. And so, um, yeah, that stuff's really important to me. And, and, and it's been a really great learning experience to, you know, I learned so much from the directors we've had on our show. Um, Chris Storr, my directing partner, mm-hmm. Shereen Davis, who we, we've had both seasons on. And I was the kind of person who, from season one, you know, I'm only directing one of the episodes in season one, but I'm at every shot list meeting and I want to know why things are being shot the way they are. I'm learning from my DPs, mm-hmm. um, being really supported by them. It's really just, it's, it's exciting for me. Like when I, um, I moved to LA to be on a sitcom and, uh, I did a family sitcom on Nick at night and I shot, I think it was like 55 episodes or something like that. And I, I just, I didn't have any friends when I moved to LA. I knew two people who did comedy. I just, I just hung out at, we shot the show at Paramount and I was just there. I was like, Hey, can I shout out the writer's room? Can I, uh, can I sit in at the edit? Can I watch what the director does? Can I look at, um, the grid for this multicam and how it shoots? Um, th- that stuff's just so interesting to me. And, and, um, and, and, and yeah, so I'm, I'm like constantly trying to, to, to soak that stuff up and, and just, um, yeah, figure out, the entire time you're figuring out your own taste and you're figuring out what you gravitate towards. And it's just such a fun process. Some of that I have to imagine also comes from the experience of doing live comedy uh, where, you know, so many of these decisions that we're talking about end up being how me, the viewer interacts with what's going on and and the kind of emotional reaction. And that's some, it's a, it's a, it's a different art form, but doing stand up, you, it's like this, you're intensely aware of the meter of your audience probably. Mm. Right. And I have to imagine that, that just that instinct of, of what that meter is and that, that translation of the audience is something when you move into a filmmaking world, you feel like you need to control and that, that Mm. because comedians know so well, when they have an audience, when they don't have an audience, right? And you were talking about it even just from the experience with the mosque and, and then the bachelorette party. No, absolutely. And it's a really good point because it's, you're, um, if you want it to be, stand-up is uh, one of those things where you're really, it's such an empathic experience. You really can feel what you're doing to people. You can feel the, you do so many shows, you start to feel what it's like when the mic is, closer to your mouth and a little bit further away you start and when you watch the masters you can really see they're moving the microphone in really subtle ways and and people if you're looking for it you're like man this is genius and it's just like a matter of a couple of inches and then that scales into television and film and i would even i would argue the thing that scales even better than that is the tolerance 
for failure and the tolerance for embarrassment because there is a vulnerability to pitching an idea in a writer's room. There is a vulnerability to having to lead a crew and there is a vulnerability in having to be calling the shots while the clock is running. And the thing stand up most prepped me for was the ability to be like, well, that didn't work. Well, I was wrong. Well, ugh, like my bad, you know, because I've, I've, I've already fucked up so many times on stage I don't care about messing up. I know that I can fix it. Like that's all, stand-up is essentially just fixing ideas. Like you're spending weeks fixing an idea until it gets to a point where it's actually palatable and it's actually funny. And a lot of the times when you start, it isn't. And so the tolerance to do that um, is the thing that was most exciting for me to scale into into making a show. How much, you, it clearly manifests itself in the writer's room, but how much, how much on set I mean, I imagine you, you have to move very quickly on the show in terms of how much time you have, but how much of it is, is trying different things on, on set to, to find a scene? Um, there's a bunch. I mean, I think like, I, uh, I grew up, so I grew up watching, I, I always felt like my favorite things were like Tarantino Coen Brothers movies and Apatow movies. I, I loved the relatability of an Apatow movie and I loved how singular a Tarantino film could be where it's like this weird alternate reality. And my favorite tone when I would think about what I really liked was I was always like, man, I wish I could just take an Apatow lead, like a guy that you can really relate to and throw him into a Tarantino world with a bunch of weirdos. And, and so stylistically, I love precision, but I also really love what feels loose and what feels improvisational. And so I'm always constantly kind of like battling between these two things of like, I need it to feel fresh and in the moment, but I also really do want it to feel precise and like we're going for something. And so that's the thing that I've been excited about, like trying to refine the, the seesaw of that. And it manifests on set where like, I would say my biggest adjustments on set is throwing out dialogue where obviously we do it in the edit, but we run something once or twice and I'm like, okay, so here's how this was overwritten. We're going to slash, 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 and then we're going to add, add, add. And then I would say, you know, we probably get two takes under our belt and then we really, you know, we're sitting in the pocket in that third, you know, takes three through five. Um, if I feel like I got it on take four or five, I'm already turning the cameras because we don't have time. We have no money. Like we, we're just like running, you know? So if I, I feel like if I know I have two good takes, I'm moving. Yeah. Um, I want to just return uh, to, to episode nine from the season again. You brought on one of our favorite directors, Desiree, um, who, who's a wonderful fit for your show. But I couldn't help but in watching that episode, thinking that not only is she a wonderful talent to bring on the show, but that there was something very specific about that episode um, that she brought to it and that it almost like casting a director for that episode. I don't know if I'm right about that, but there, there seemed to be something uh, bringing her into that mix for that Nassim episode that seemed tonally just so right. I think casting a director is a great way to put it. Um, we do that with a lot of our episodes. I mean, there's like, I'm pretty deliberate about, yeah, no, Shireen should do this one. We should bring in Desiree to do this one because I think what I'm looking for in a director, again, I'm on set for everything virtually, you know, like I'm there. Um, and I'm looking for someone who is going to, in the same way that I'm looking for in the writer's room, who's going to bring something to the vision that 
I couldn't be equipped to know. And so, I mean, I, I remember watching uh, the bisexual and, and we're making an episode that is around sexuality. I mean, this isn't box checking. It's not like, well, we should get someone who's bisexual to get into this episode about sexuality as much as it is. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm not that. And I want to figure that out. Sometimes you do that with a consultant and sometimes you do that with a writer and sometimes you do that with a director. I think you do it where it feels appropriate. You just want to make sure that the conversation is getting balanced out somewhere. I don't think that it has to be per se prescriptive, like, you know, this person does that. But I think you need to make sure that it's happening on one part of baking the episode. And then again, it can happen at various stages. Um, but it felt like a really good match it did. Uh, it on did. a director place. It yeah. did. Even beyond, I, you know, I wasn't even thinking about the sexual orientation, even with her. Is there something of even just the way that he experiences intimacy and the way that, you know, his everybody's got this a little bit awkward around intimacy, but his is like such this big kind of, you know, from, from tears to punching. And she's felt like the mm. perfect, perfect person to kind of like walk that line. Um, mm. You know, what help me, help me understand here. Um, where were, where was the Rami production? Uh, uh, may it be post-production production when, you know, I guess somewhere around the second week in March is kind of when the tri-state area started to shut down um, because of coronavirus. Were you guys wrapped? What, what, where, what, what? Cause obviously there was, <laughs> I started getting screeners of, I got screeners of the show, I think in April and I started watching it and I was like, this thing's not color corrected. This thing's not mixed. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, these guys are doing this from, you know, this this thing's being finished in quarantine. Uh, oh, yeah. Congratulations, by the way, but I'm uh, doing that. But I, but I'm also just curious. Were, were you where were you in the process of making this show uh, when when yeah. the world started shutting down? Man, we were we had three episodes edited that we had been working on in person. We had third week of March scheduled three pickup days mm-hmm. that had a lot of shit that I really wanted. <laughs> and um i was in la um our post is in new york i was in la i had a couple of meetings and i was pre-proing what would be the pickup days remotely and i just got stuck in la and so i was in la on like a three-day trip everything shut down and it was very quickly a conversation of we are releasing the day we were supposed to release. Mm-hmm. Good luck. <laughs> and <laughs> and we went into problem solving mode. We went into, okay, we got to edit, you know, again, only three are done. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got to edit the majority of the season remote. We have to figure out what we're going to do without the things we wanted to get. Mm-hmm. Some of them were plotty, to be honest, and some of them were, you know, dream reshoots or dream whatever. Um, and not even to get into specifics because I don't think it really matters. I think what we did end up putting out, I'm super proud of and mm. everything. And, you know, just from a filmmaking perspective, it's always a negotiation. You're it's always, always problem solving. The creative, always the creative stuff comes from the problem solving. But I imagine that yes. the problem solving in this case was these pickup days. <laughs> so, so, oh, yeah. And then so suddenly mean, the you got to problem solve on a totally different schedule and a to- with a totally different set of tools. Oh totally different schedule and you're not in the room with your editor and you're you're shipping microphones around the world and i'm up at 
4 a.m. LA time so that I can do um, a VO session with Hiam, who plays my mom and who's living in France. And, and we got to get this down while we're Skyping in the, the, the person who's, who's in New York, who's our actual tech. I mean, this thing, you could have made a documentary. I mean, like we're, we're editing over Google documents that are updating live and I'm texting with my editor who it's easier for her to export a low res and instead of emailing that low res, she's just iMessaging it. So we're editing it over iMessage. I mean, it's 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 insane. I'm like, get me this part of this yeah. scene edited over i, and then I'll watch the full by the time it exports and uploads on a media, media silo. I'm not gonna be able to watch that until 9 p.m. LA time, and then you go sleep for seven hours. I mean, it's like that kind of shit. Yeah. And so, and, and one of our um, sequences that I'm most proud of that I really love was born out of kind of pandemic where, um, it's we had a bunch of stuff we were going to shoot with Rami and Zainab and it got condensed to the intro of Atlantic City yes, which is this montage of them yeah. uh having a series of FaceTimes and phone calls which um it, <laughs> I love that sequence so much I mean it was kind of one of those things where I pitched it to my co-creators and everyone was like that's ah, just gonna feel like a fix and I was like it might but it also might feel really cool and um I don't know. I, I don't think it's the optimist in me. I'm like, I really love that sequence. You know what was so fascinating? I was watching, I watched, because I, like I said, I watched that one again this morning. And I've been, and I'm sure you have seen this too. Well, I'm sure you've been talking this way too, but I've also started to see people create um, and tell stories through this idea of, of, of a FaceTime Zoom type thing. And um, I was trying to think about it. Like there's an element of the fact that it was supposed to be a pre-quarantine time and there is an innocence and there is an intimacy because I feel like people are when they're making these FaceTime movies now in quarantine part of what's baked into it is this idea that we're isolated and is this, mm-hmm. this time was we're alone and yet like what what you and the actress really figured out is there's an element of like no this is kind of that courtship giddy phone call you know, yeah. like sharing and getting to know someone in a way. And it, 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 it's, it's almost in, it started. It made me realize that part of part of what we're carrying into these FaceTimes and Zooms is is the situation that we're in less than it is the device. I, I don't know, because because yeah. that's the reason it doesn't feel like a, a quarantine fix is because, yes, mentally, your two characters aren't in quarantine. <laughs> Yeah, it feeds it feeds the story in such an um, an organic way because I remember feeling like, no, the the thing here isn't that I can't see her in person. It's that Rami, the character, is having a different dating experience than he's ever had. His dating experience has always been these ones where he's hooking up quick and he's having sex and he's being led by his desires, and now he is meeting this woman who uh, doesn't want to be with him alone because she's like, no, we can do that after we get married. And and I'll talk to you over the phone because that's how I want to get to know you. And so there's this this innocence and this really interesting um, way of getting to know someone that's kind of born out of that. Um, so it feels like it's informing our characters in a way. And that's what excited me about it. And I was really like banging my head against the wall because I'm like, man, how are we going to do this? And then it just felt so right because I was like, oh, but this is also how a lot of Muslim couples do because <laughs> they don't they just don't hang without you know other people without family and whatever and and so it felt um yeah it was really exciting it's like really important when she says uh uh this is my bedroom you're never gonna see it again it's just this yeah, yeah. 
It's really, uh, you know, it's funny because I think I probably, if I was part of your team and I was in the room, I would have been like, at the time, I would have been like, mm, this is going to feel, this is going to feel like a fix. Do we really need oh, yeah. it? Oh, yeah. Really oh, dude, it was, it was a very sad, I pitched it and most of everyone was like, ugh, I don't know, man. And I was like, guys, just, I got this, like, I'll, I'll get back to you in a week. And then it was really cool. A bunch of people on the team being like, dude. <laughs> you know, everyone was like, wait, this, this doesn't suck. And, and what I love about my co-creators and who I'm, like, we're really hard on ourselves. Sure, sure, we sure. do not want shit to be yeah. shitty. Yeah. And it's really, it was really exciting for me where like my co-creator Ari was just like, dude, it worked. And I was just like, oh man, yeah. if you think it worked, then it definitely worked because you hate everything. You know? Um, can we talk a little bit about, um, the music of the show? Uh, there's one thing I, I love, um, I love the music that Dan and Mike do. I think Mike does a lot more, did a lot more for second season, but also um, I, and I please apologize if I, if I, if I'm categorizing this wrong, but it's like Arab versions of pop songs we all know or something. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I hope that's an okay uh, sure. description, but um, either way though, I mean, the score seems to serve a, a, a purpose of like finding kind of these tricky moods, this balance of tone where cause you, you don't want to go too heavy with music and they, they find a, they find something there. And then there's just something about the way that the, the music supervision and the, the songs work in a completely different way that um, I don't, I don't know why, but they felt they're, they're very exciting needle drops, but I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the approach to music with the show. Yeah, we, um, you know, it's something that I really enjoy doing in stand up. It, which is I a lot of times when I'm telling a joke the beginning of the joke is a little bit of a slow burn and then I kind of am building like a little bit of a feeling and then getting into what's funny about it and kind of weird about it and then a punchline and then kind of like a a, a, a punctuation and I love endings and I think even as a creator I'm way better at endings than beginnings um, it's something that I've found as I like write and as I make things, um, I, I always think of the end. I always kind of know where the end is a lot of the time before I know what the beginning is. Um, and I've gotten better at beginnings, but it's the thing that I kind of work on shaping. Um, but endings I love and, and, and whether that be in jokes and whether that be in the show. Um, so, so much of the music, especially with needle drops is a lot of times to me, they feel like the punctuation uh, in the way that you get a punctuation in a stand-up joke, in the way that you kind of really get that punchline. And we use music as a punchline um, emotionally, uh, whether that be a punchline that should be for a laugh or one that should be for feeling something. And, and, and I think um, we are sparing in when we use music in the show too, because the show plays more dry. We don't want music to tip off tension we want the tension to be real and then the music is again a punctuation or a reflection of that um but we don't want to cheat i hate cheating with music i hate i hate just unnecessary background noise i hate unnecessary music just to to get away with you know something that the writing couldn't do um so we're really thoughtful about when those things come in and what those things are and the music with dan and mike is they really nailed something that i didn't know how to you know when we started they were like what do you like what music do you like and i'm like uh, I like ambient Icelandic Saros and Mum, and I like uh, The National, and I like just all this like shit that has nothing to do with comedy uh, or that doesn't feel particularly comedic. And they really figured out a way to take the type of 
things that I like to listen to and kind of make our own sound and, and really dig into that and do it in a way that also like really works with um, what we have with these needle drops that are so um, like these Arab songs and these things that are so of the world that we're looking at too. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope you don't mind talking about this, but uh, you know, there was a, a, a letter that went around and I got it on the weekend. My wife and I got the letter on the weekend um, from people that were passing around your email kind of in the industry before uh, mm. other publications picked it up. Um, and it was a letter from um, someone that worked uh, on your, uh, he did. Joe did work on your show, right? Is he is he, a, is he on Rami or is he someone? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, someone that worked in the uh, parking department on your show, and it was um, something that you had shared, and it, it quickly kind of made its way around. Uh, and it was it's it's an incredible letter, um, and I I wanted to talk to you about it because it seemed I read your email that you had sent out to the cast and crew, and it was something that clearly moved you, and that you felt like we we should all read you know and i, mm-hmm. I it, it, the reason it got to me is so many people in the industry were reading it you know and, mm-hmm. and my wife works in new york production and it landed in her inbox in about five seconds too um mm-hmm. yeah and I, i'm just i'm just curious about i mean i'll link to it people can read the letter and they should read the letter on its own but that need to to share that letter yeah it was interesting um i had been emailing with john about something separate Oh, I apologize. Um, Is his name John? I'm sorry. I yeah, up. John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, I've been, sorry, John. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been emailing with him about something separately um, and like organically. And, and, and I had reached out to him because the details aren't really important, but something had come up and um, and I reached out to him and he was just so um grateful even he was like dude thanks for reaching out to me thanks for emailing me like this is why i love this show like i know you're busy and that you like thought of you know reaching out to to me um means a lot and um and we were just kind of talking back and forth and i think because we were talking back and forth when he wrote this letter he kind of felt like oh well i'll just he kind of just sent it in the correspondence i was having with him he was like oh you know i figured i'd just send this to you um and I felt, you know, I read this letter that he put together called Working in Silence um, about his experience in the industry over uh, so many years um, at this job that can, you know, as a, as a working in parking uh, that can be considered um, for, in many productions kind of like bottom of the totem pole, but not only just that, but doing so as a black man. And he wrote this really um elegant letter and i say elegant because it's short and concise and as a writer i know how hard it is to make something short and concise so it really hit me because i'm like man he he really not only you know it's hard when you're not a writer to write something that feels so streamlined and that's so effective and i think that's what's amazing about it is he wrote about his experiences and it's so poignant um and I was just like, everyone has to read this. It shouldn't just be because him and I were already emailing that I got to look at this. The whole crew needs to read this. Like everyone needs to be talking about this. Um, and so I asked him, I was like, hey, can I send this to the whole crew? And and he said, of course, like, thank you for, you know, thinking of doing that. And then it became this kind of thing where, um, yeah, I didn't realize it was going to be, you know, shown so much. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for sharing the letter. Uh, and uh, congratulations on this season. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's really, it, it's a remarkable piece of work. Oh, thank you, man. Uh, thanks for the, thanks for the combo. It was really fun. 
And today's podcast was brought to you by the Apple TV Plus original documentary, Beastie Boy Story, for your Emmy consideration in all eligible categories, including outstanding documentary or nonfiction special.